0: Welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Mark Hopwood. With us today is Dan Sperber, research professor at the Jean-Nicot Institute and George Lersey, visiting professor at the University of Chicago. And he's here to talk to us about epistemic vigilance. Dan Sperber, welcome. Thank you. So I guess we could begin by talking about two different approaches to what we should do with information given to us by testimony from other people as opposed to information given to us by sense experience. I guess sometimes these two approaches are called anti-reductionist or reductionist. So the one approach would be something like, information we receive by testimony is not something trustworthy. Only information we receive by the senses is trustworthy. And maybe the other position would be something like, we are by default entitled to trust information we hear from others. What's your position on that question? Do you think we're, by default, entitled to trust what other people tell us is true?
1: Are you going to trust everything I'm going to say? Um. Commit yourself now. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. But that's not true. You don't mean it. (laughs) So, so, uh, in fact, it's not true that we do, to begin with, whether we're right or not, that we do trust everything we're told. Certainly not philosophers who are in, in the business of criticizing each other all the time. But even in ordinary life, uh, there are indeed many situations where we uh, trust testimony from others and also many situations where we're skeptical and others where we just distrust. So the the, the two positions you are thinking of discussing are are on the one and one view which says that testimony is indeed like the senses. It's a fundamental source of information from human beings. If you think of a young child, uh, what other way does she have to become a competent human being than to trust testimony of parents of caretakers of others uh, our reliance on information from others is uh, not something that we can give up we need it and therefore on this view from this statement of fact that I've just made some would infer that it's not just a fact that we rely on others that we're entitled to do so that indeed our default attitude should be to believe others unless we have some specific reason not to and that just as we have to rely on our senses and we need very special circumstances to doubt the testimony of our senses we have to rely on others and we need special circumstances not to another view is that it's not that you should distrust testimony because that's in in general because that would put you indeed in an impossible situation of not benefiting from the communication of others uh, and that's not a real option Uh, but that you should have reason to trust those whom you trust so ask maybe some people who have to reason to trust practically all the time, uh, like people you know are competent and benevolent towards you. But even then, these people on some matter may speak beyond the domain of their competencies, and then you should trust them less. But if you think of testimonies in general, each and every time you should have a reason to trust. You should evaluate the testimony to be entitled to be justified in trusting it. And so that's the reductionist position. You have to reduce. The information you get from testimony to reasons to uh, trust it as opposed to the non-reductionist view which says a testimony is in the human condition a way into knowledge that has just as much legitimacy as the testimony of the senses or at least a comparable kind of strength.
2: So it seems like from what you've said there are two kinds of questions at least at first that we might ask about testimony. So one is the descriptive kind of question how do we actually treat testimony as a matter of fact what do we human beings do how do we treat the testimony of others and then there's a question that might be connected to that which is the normative or the prescriptive mm-hmm. question how should we treat testimony mm-hmm. and there you've mentioned there's a very strong tradition of thinking well we should all things be equal at first trust testimony that's where we start from and we need reasons not to trust other people's testimony but not to trust their testimony in the absence of any reasons not to trust them we trust them and that as you've suggested does seem like a fairly plausible view to have but it's a view that you've raised some problems with so i wonder if you could say something about that
1: yes i don't think it's uh, that plausible and the reason is this our senses work for us they're part of ourselves they both have evolved to serve the organism of which we are a part, and we've developed in each one of us through childhood and, and cognitive development, indeed to serve us and to serve our interests. They don't have conflicting interests with us. Not so from the testimony of others. I mean, others have their own interests in communicating. When somebody communicates, what she wants to do is have a certain effect on you. She may want to have an effect that's good for you. She may be benevolent. The effect she may want to have on you is to inform you of uh, what she believes is the truth. But that's just one possibility. Even when this is the case, she wants you not to inform of the truth in general because there are so many truths which are totally irrelevant. She wants to inform you of truth which, for instance, may guide your action. And she may have a certain view of what you should do, which may be, again, benevolent. She thinks it would be better for you to do this or that. Or more selfish. She may want you to do this or that because it's good for her. Even if it's benevolent, you don't necessarily have to accept that she knows what's good for you. You may want to decide yourself. So in any case, in many uh, situations of communications, there is only a partial convergence between the interests of interlocutors, and there's a certain degree of, of divergence. So from the point of view of your audience, what you want from communication is genuine information, basically, genuine and relevant information. From the point of view of a communicator, what you want is to achieve a certain effect which, for whatever reason, is desirable for you to achieve, again, whether it's altruistic or or egoistic. So that makes this difference of interest between the interlocutors such that communication isn't and cannot be reliable in the way uh, perception is. Again, it doesn't work in our interest in a systematic manner. Uh, on the other hand, we indeed depend on communication greatly, and a lot of it is benevolent and is done for our benefit. So how do we tell apart? So one view is, as, is as you suggested, we trust un- unless we have a reason not to. How do we know uh, in which case we have a reason not to? This view of the kind of default trust, we trust by default. So maybe, it's, how would that work? So it might be, oh, you know in advance that person is not to be trusted or you know in advance that person has interests very different from mine and might not be trustworthy on, on this occasion. And all the rest of the time, if you don't have such prior knowledge to reason to distrust, you would trust. But is that a reasonable or sensible way to allocate your trust and distrust? The fact is that you may have uh, reasons, as just suggested, to trust a priori before communication but you may discover in the course of communication what people's interests and intentions and or competence are. But if you have adopted a kind of a priori attitude of trust then you won't discover it because you're just simply trusting. So I, what I, I suggest is that what we have is a kind of permanent attitude of vigilance, by which I mean not that we are obsessed with the idea that we might be misled by others or that we are distrustful people. Vigilance and distrust are different things. Just we're cautious. I mean, we're attentive to what may be the motivation of a speaker, what may be the competence of a speaker. There's one comparison I like making is between if you walk in the street, uh, lots of people, uh, they're walking, they walk at arm length for less than, very, very close to you. They could intentionally or unintentionally bump into you, hit you. Uh, you're putting, in a way, your, your life at risk by walking in a crowd. Nevertheless, we do that, and not only really do we do that, but we do that without fear. Sometimes we do it just for the pleasure of a straw. So how is that possible? It's possible because... We trust people up to a point where, I say that we are vigilant. We're looking at the people around us so as not to bump into them ourselves and to see if there are some people who seem a bit more aggressive or a bit more careless. And because everybody who walks in the street has this kind of low-level vigilance, this makes the street environment a relatively safe one. So it's because in communication, I would argue, we are all vigilant in this kind of background fashion, not obsessive, we we pay attention to people's knowledge, to people's intentions, motivations and so on, that in a way we keep each other honest. It becomes harder for those who might want to deceive because they're addressing a vigilant audience and this makes it safer for all of us to assume that people will be a bit the cost of being dishonest becomes greater the incentive to stay honest becomes greater and not just honest but also careful in the sense of not saying things they have enough grounds to say and so that uh, indeed we are trustful in communication but we are trustful because we are all, to so again some low degree, but real degree, uh, vigilant. So that's the view I've been trying to defend.
0: You seem to be suggesting that this epistemic vigilance, which is the process that happens sort of in the background, kind of automatically as we communicate with people, is something that makes trusting other people possible in the first place. And that seems like an interesting claim, but... Um, It's not immediately clear why that would be true. I mean, why couldn't we trust people without this background condition of being vigilant?
1: Well, we could, and again, the argument can be made that very young children have no other choice, even though there is experimental work showing that uh, children are less gullible than one might think, and that they, too, exert some modicum, at least, of epistemic vigilance. So you could imagine a society, say, where people would be uh, systematically trustful and would mistrust only when there are blatant reasons to do so, to mistrust. The the issue is that in such a society, it would become very advantageous to deceive others. I mean, when it would be in your interest to deceive, you would certainly have a strong incentive to do so. So you imagine that there is some kind of moral force, there has to be in that society some kind of moral force that would prevent people from doing that. Or else, and I don't know where this move or force would come from and what would maintain it in action for everybody, because it's enough if you have a minority of de- deceivers to make communication less profitable. So unless you have some way, which it's not clear which way, to cause people to speak truthfully and competently practically all the time, what would happen in that society is that people would speak in their own interest. And that the benefits of communication would be lowered for everybody, with the, uh, the very real possibility that communication, which on the whole is such an advantageous aspect of human interaction, human life, might become disadvantageous. So the very stability of communication as a human practice would be threatened if people in communicating could freely be guided just by their interest and without... Uh, having basically to fear at least failure of communication and possibly some kind of diminution of a reputation, I mean, some cost by communicating either in a dishonest manner or in an irresponsible manner. Uh, so, the reason why it's implausible that uh, human communication could have developed just with an attitude of trust is that communication then would have been vulnerable to deception and cheating to a degree such that it might have compromised the advantageousness, uh, the advantage of communication itself.
0: So in other words, it's because we're policing each other all the time that it's reasonable to assume that that we're conveying information to each other in a trustworthy manner.
1: Yes, uh, when you put it like that, I feel very unhappy because I don't like to think of ourselves as policing each other all the time. It's a bit too strong. It's because we are psychologically sophisticated that it's reasonable to stress each other most of the time. That is, we, we are aware of people's motivation. We are aware that people tend to overestimate their own competence and will often assert things when they don't have sufficient ground to do so. We are aware that there is great temptation to distort uh, what we know to be the case, to suit our purpose. And I'm not talking just of case of you know, straightforward uh, dishonesty, embezzlement, inventing a completely false story, although these cases occur quite a lot. I'm talking about something that practically everybody is guilty of. For instance, in the way we present ourselves, we talk about ourselves, we show the best side. So we're not awfully dishonest, but we're not perfectly honest either. And we know that about each other. So we may fall prey to uh, the uh, nice picture that another person gives of herself, if we want to but we don't we're able not to I mean it's uh, so it's not policing is too strong a term but a certain kind of psychological sophistication I think is at play in human communication all the time
2: So we've been talking about the question of how we should treat the testimony of others that's to say the normative or the prescriptive Mm -hmm. question but we've also clearly been touching on the descriptive Mm -hmm. question we've talked about how we actually behave how we may have evolved to behave Mm. and your work is work that's drawn not just on the philosophical tradition but also on experimental psychology Mm. and you've used experiments in psychology to support your work I wonder if you could tell us about a couple of those experiments that are pertinent to this point and how do they support your view
1: well sure first I mean there are experiments done for instance by Alexander Todorov at Princeton which I find very uh, telling. And, uh, and we show this, that people encountering new faces, new, new individuals, almost the first thing they look at and look for are signs of trustworthiness or untrustworthiness. It might seem strange in the sense, how can you see trustworthiness in somebody's face? Well, we seem to assume that we do the experiments that Todorov did was to show pictures of faces for either a tenth of a second, a very little time, or to let them look at the pictures for as long as they wanted. And then to ask uh, judgment of attractiveness, aggressiveness, uh, uh, and trustworthiness, a number of features like that, on the basis of this very short exposition or this longer exposition. And the striking fact is that if you look at how much looking longer modifies your initial impression, where you get the least uh, modification is for trustworthiness so which you immediately form an impression of trustworthiness which is less likely to be modified if you can spend more time looking at the face. And what this suggests is not necessarily that your impression is right. In fact that's rather strange that you know how can you tell if in tenth of a second by looking at a picture of a person is trustworthy or not? The only I'm citing this experiment because it shows that this is the first thing we look for. So that's just a good illustration of how much we care about uh, other people's trustworthiness. Of course, if we by default assume that people are trustworthy, we wouldn't be doing that. Take this evidence just as showing this. Now, more contentful and positive experiments have dealt with two aspects of vigilance, epistemic vigilance. So there are, when you can, to be epistemic vigilant towards the information that's communicated to you, you can attend to two major uh, dimensions. You can a- a- attend to the trustworthiness of a source. Some people are more trustworthy than others, at least in a certain situation and on certain topics. So you may decide pass judgment on the trustworthiness of a source of information and you may also pass judgment on the uh, believability of what people tell you. so with, you know one question you may ask is whom to trust Another question is what to believe and so experiments have been done by a number of researchers and some by us on these two aspects, so for instance. Uh, With a student of mine, former student of mine, Olivier Mascaro, we've done quite a bit of work on the development of uh, vigilance towards the source in young children. And uh, we've shown that uh, children as young as three, and probably even earlier, will trust the information given uh, by a nice agent more than they would information given by a a mean, nasty agent. We do that with little puppets one being described and shown to be nasty, and the other being described and shown to be mean. And, you know, a three-year-old will trust one rather than the other, when in fact both, when they communicate, present themselves as trustworthy and authoritative and so on, whether you're mean or not. When you speak, you speak as being cooperative mm. uh, and imparting information that can be trusted. We've shown that a uh, four-year-old capable, if they know that an individual is a liar, to discount the information that individual communicates and, in fact, draw inferences from this whole city. Three years old don't do that. We've shown that between four and six, children understand better and better the possibility and the mechanism of deception and will be particularly uh, cautious when they know that the interests of a communicator are in conflict with their own interests. It's also the age where there's a lot of observational and experimental evidence showing that children themselves Become master at deceptions. So before that, we may the lying of a three-year-old is typically deny. I didn't do that. You know, did you do that? No, 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 no. no. The, uh, but you know, inventing a story and so on in order to mislead others is harder to do. And in fact, children typically start doing that around the age of four or five. And our suggestion is that what happens around that age is precisely that children become, acquire this kind of level of psychological sophistication when they understand that people in speaking have various levels of competence and various kinds of motivations. So they don't become obsessed by that no more than we are, but it becomes a permanent dimension of a, a interaction, in particular of a communicative interaction with others. So that, that's one type of experimental work. We have done other work has to do with the content of information, what, not so much who to believe, but what to believe. And so, how do we? Uh, how is it that certain things seem to be much more believable than others? Some things we reject as clearly not believable. Others we will accept without problem, and some we may have a doubt so because in fact so the first that's to do how much is it consistent with what we already believe. But of course if we only believe what is consistent with what we already believe we would fail to revise our own beliefs in the light of what other people say. We would not even update our beliefs and that wouldn't be optimal from our point of view. So we have to accept the possibility that we may be mistaken and others may help us correct our mistakes. So, but how do you do that? What's, what kind of reasoning is involved? So suppose somebody whom you trust, so if you look at the reliability of a source, is a highly trustworthy person on the topic on which she's talking to you, and she says something that contradicts what you already believed. then in that case, in any, you have to revise something. Either you revise your belief about the subject at hand, or you revise your belief about the trustworthiness. And you probably go for a minimal revision, which often will consist in revising your own beliefs. So the idea is that there is a kind of constant attention to um, both the internal coherence of what is being said and to its coherence with what you already uh, know or believe. And that that this is another way to uh, exert vigilance towards communicated information.
0: So what these various experiments seem to suggest is that, in fact, there is this process of monitoring information that we get from other people and coming to conclusions about whether someone is a reliable source of information and whether they're being honest and things like that. But I guess one question I have about your position now is it sounds like it's still somewhat close to the position we initially described as reductionism. What's the difference exactly now? Because it seems like we've backed away from the anti-reductionism, but have we gone back to... But it's
1: it's reductionist. It's close to reductionist. In the sense re- reductionist is the view that to believe in testimony, you have to have some reason to do so. It's not, it can't be just by default. It can't be automatic. And indeed, I'm suggesting uh, that people's trust is, to a certain degree, reasoned. Again, not in the sense that each and every time you stop to think, you know, should I believe what I'm being told? but there is a kind of permanent awareness of relevant factors, again the psychology of the interlocutor, the competence the motivation are present and uh, may give you suff- just on first blush sufficient reason to go on and trust or reasons to think about it a bit more, to pay more attention and in some cases reasons indeed to distrust so yes it's uh, closer to the uh, so called reductionist position what I'm arguing definitely What's added is what you've been asking questions about, namely a kind of richer empirical grounding for this reductionist position. Indeed, the reductionist position is a normative position. It says this is what we uh, should do. The empirical work, of course, is about the descriptive aspect, what we do do. And uh, what it suggests is that uh, what we do do is in line with the norms that are being defended. Um, by the uh, reductionist, but in uh, giving a kind of richer content to uh, the kind of reduction, if that's the right term, and that, in fact, we do uh, perform and that I would argue we should perform.
2: And I guess you might take this back to the example you gave earlier of walking down the street. Mm -hmm. So one way of being a reductionist about that would be to say every single person we go past it's like we have to stop, think about how we're going to get around them, where are they going to move. And it looks like that kind of process could take ages and it would be impossibly cumbersome and surely we don't act like that. And your richer view says, well, no, it's not that we do that. It's not that we make these individual decisions, but we develop the capacity to walk down the street in a space that is defined by our vigilance towards other people or something mm. like that. So the movements that we make... Even though once we're making them, they seem very natural. They seem not thought out. They're only possible because we're capable of paying attention to where people are and how they're moving.
1: That's right. Again, to draw a bit more on this comparison, think of walking in the woods in a densely uh, with dense undergrowth. So, really, have to be very careful where you put your foot, and so your your movements are really closely uh, adjusted to the uh, physical properties of the environment. But the environment there is inert. It's not trying to do anything to you. It has no motivation. It is just a bit complicated to negotiate when you walk for it. When you walk in a street in a crowd, everybody is also moving, having their own directions, goals, and so on. So now it's a much more kind of strategic thinking, if you want. But again, just as you can walk in the undergrowth, in a forest, enjoy it, and carry on the conversation while you do it, and so on. So it does take some vigilance to the environment, but it's not obsessive, it need to be unpleasant. The same thing is true when we walk for a crowd. It's certainly not thinking about, oh, this person is like this, that person. we not... But having this attention, low-level attention, to a lot of things that might be relevant to our change of course of walking. Same thing again for communication. Nothing obsessive, nothing like being distrustful. As I I said before, vigilance is not equivalent to distrust. It's a good condition for trust. So yes, that's the view I'm I'm pushing. Uh, And and the issue on my raise is, you know, if one assumes that the description I'm giving is correct, it doesn't have to be the case that what we do is what we should do. Maybe we should be more trustful, maybe we should be more distrustful. And uh, in fact, I'm not assuming that we're always optimal in our allocation of trust. So some people are paranoid, and uh, they, they distrust other more than they should. others maybe got gullible which is not such a great idea. Also you know talking now personally and from a moral point of view, I would argue from a normative point of view in trusting people more than is warranted from a strictly objective point of view for several reasons. The first one, that there is a kind of self-fulfilling effect uh, that comes from trusting people. If you trust people, but that's true in communication, but it's true in general, they're more likely to behave in a way such as to deserve uh, this trust. It's not as if there's some objective level of trust that people deserve and that is independent from uh, your attitude. So let's trust a bit more than is uh, justified by what we know beforehand, our trusting will have this self fulfilling property to a certain extent. I mean, it's, uh, here again, it can't be just automatic and by default, but we should, you know, I'm in favor personally, deeply, of betting on the trustworthiness of people. And the other thing is, it, it also makes for a better social life if we do so. You know, sometimes you're going to be disappointed. But if basically, we, so, so there's another moral reason, which is not, well, that's more moral reason because the first reason of self fulfilling says, well, in fact, you will gain uh, from your own interest point of view by being a bit more trustworthy than seems to be warranted. But even if you didn't, it would still... uh, There's a moral consideration. It's better for everybody else if everybody is a bit more trusting than, than is warranted. It makes for a better social life. So I'm not assuming that there's a perfect match between the descriptive and the normative, but I think there's a close relationship between the two.
2: And it seems like this is the kind of relationship that really might vary a lot depending on context. And it begins to look like it's very hard to separate these questions from substantive ethical and political questions. So one kind of case that comes to mind is young women growing up in America and the kind of testimony they get from all kinds of cultural sources about what it means to be a woman, what it means to be attractive... And you might think that, given certain ethical and political considerations, higher degrees of vigilance are required. Precisely what we try to teach people is to question the standards of relevance that are proposed for them. So that in certain contexts, the right thing to do might be to considerably up our natural
1: Yes, that's so first, I mean, let me notice that we are free men talking about what women should believe or not believe, and if I were a woman listening to the program, I would say, no, <laughs> wait a second, should I believe you, to begin with? <laughs> uh, uh, so, But in general, so let's <laughs> keep it general. Uh, there's lots of reasons why cultural information, ideological information, political information that circulates is to be uh, looked at uh, with indeed a high degree of vigilance, which has not to do so much with the trustworthiness or honesty or sincerity of individual communicators from whom we get it, but from how it stabilizes, A reflection on how such information stabilizes the society. So why do certain views become cultural views, accepted views, which go almost without saying? And here there's a kind of general question that one might ask. If people are, as I'm claiming, epistemically vigilant in every one of their interactions to some degree that should have a good effect at a population level. It should precisely stand in the way of uh, deeply mistaken views of what our character, moral character, descriptive character, cosmological character, spreading and stabilizing in the population. But it doesn't seem to be the case. I mean, uh, we would, would all agree that a lot of extremely implausible views stabilize in all cultures. Again, both of a descriptive kind, explaining what the world is and how it became what it is, and of a moral kind. And one of the uh, issues that I've been interested in, in fact, I've come to study epistemic vigilance from that issue, because I've come from the social sciences and philosophy of the social sciences initially, is what explains the stabilization of this often quite irrational beliefs or unsustainable uh, values at the collective level. So one view would be to say, well, when you recognize something as being a piece of cultural information, you're not vigilant anymore. Oh, it's shared by the culture, therefore accept it, and you don't question it. So you may question what your friend or your neighbor says or your partner, but you don't question these generally accepted views. And it's a view that's very common in the social sciences and in, in psychology that, you know. There's a kind of... you internalize the culture, basically. Culture is something that you, you accept because it's a culture. And I'm not convinced that this is correct. I think that you get it through individual channels, you know, from your friends, your parents, your peers, older people, and so on and so on. That's how you uh, get all this information. So if you get it through so many uh, thousands and thousands of acts of communication which are not different, and they don't you know, not come as classified. This is cultural. They're not different from communication in general and you approach them in the same manner. But what I think we have, it's not that vigilance doesn't apply to this kind of cultural communication or communication of cultural content, is that it's not very effective at filtering it uh, because of the fact that your interlocutor, uh, your friends would tell you, you know, this is what we believe, this is what you should do and so do not speak with their own authority, but have just the channel, the authority of others who are also channeling the authority. So it's kind of seemed to be backed uh, by a vast number of witnesses or, or people. And there seems to be a sensible rule that if you know several sources of information say the same thing, that gives you stronger reason to believe it that if only one of them does. So, true if you think about it, it's not absolutely true when formulated like that. But various testimonies have to be independent of one another, then they do reinforce one another. But if they all copied one, you know, on this, for instance, an initial single source, then they're not stronger than the initial single source. If more in, in being transmitted they change in content, then they don't even lose whatever authority the initial source had. And that is typically what happens in the transmission of cultural content But it gives the impression so you'd have to be able to rethink simple rules like, you know, more people tell me the same thing, greater reason to believe it. From the day-to-day case where the people tell you uh, things are people you know what they talk about are things which are familiar, to the, the more general case of cultural information transmitted by people who may also not be your close friends but uh, people in the society at large or at least who are being, even if it's your friends who, who speak to you, people are close to you, channeling in, people are not. And there the mechanism of vigilance which are effective in face-to-face interactions where what is being transmitted is information about local situations, local events, local mental states when these are transferred to information that comes from much further away in social networks, I think the, the mechanism of individual or small-scale epistemic vigilance fails to filter information properly. Unless, precisely, you get, and that's when it becomes interesting, mechanism of epistemic vigilance, which are not of a psychological nature anymore, but of a sociological nature. You get institutions... Uh, organizations, norms, social norms which aim at uh, filtering information, at establishing vigilance in a socially coordinated manner. So you get that, for instance, in judicial procedures. Uh, There are are procedures which you find in various ways in all societies aiming at precisely establishing the reliability of testimonies, what to believe, when, and so on, uh, with contradictory exchanges on on their values so you you find the judicial procedure in traditional societies and so on which are a kind of uh, social organization of epistemic vigilance they may be corrupted They may be uh, there may be a power relationship that uh, buys them and so on but basically the, the sense that you need to organize finding a fact collectively in a justifiable manner is exemplified across human societies or to take another obvious example, if you think of scientific organization, practice and institution, they are very much in the business of epistemic vigilance, so just take very simply uh, if you're a scientist or philosopher of that matter and you want to publish a paper, you send it to a, a journal where it would be peer-reviewed. It may be a peer-reviewed in a manner that's anonymous, so it's, it's judged not on the base of a source. If it's anonymous, blind peer-reviewing, it, the reviewers won't know who the author is or are, so they judge it just on the base of the content. Um, but if now you, you get accepted, you're published in a good journal, then it gets published with your name, and then your credibility, so the, you get a reputation, which by publishing in a good journal, by being granted a PhD, by uh, uh, having a, a job in a good institution, all that contributes to your believability. Now, of course, the system is very imperfect, but it still does play uh, with great imperfection a role of epistemic vigilance. It, it, it does sift and sort sources of information in the science in a way which tends to put tends to put the most reliable on top.
0: Dan Sperber, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: To listen to future episodes of Elucidations, you may consult our website at philosophy.uchicago.edu/podcasts.